Lord, as we open your word, uh, we want to meet you in it. And that we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us um, with a fresh understanding of your word. And uh, may this be a time where we are with you, together with you, learning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been studying uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we are now in chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3, Paul gives direction to families. He, uh, he gives direction to wives, husbands, children, fathers. Then last week we talked about uh, the direction he gives in the workplace. And now he talks about uh, this. He says, Con- continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So, so have a prayerful heart, and as you pray, have a thankful heart. By the way, um, we do meet uh, every Sunday morning at 9.15, and we pray uh, before the service. If you, have, uh, if you would like to join us, we'd love to have you there. Um, there's no special pass to get in, uh, 9.15, any Sunday morning. Okay, we meet in the back office area there. So now Paul says pray, and as he mentions prayer now, he says, oh, by the way, pray for me. So here's his prayer request. Uh, at the same time, pray for us, that, that's Paul and his uh, fellow prisoners, because he's in jail. Pray for us. And that, then he says that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, um, isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, pray that the prison door would open. He says, pray that a door for the, the gospel would open, the, the word. Okay, so his ultimate concern is not even himself, but the spreading of the word of God. I find that fascinating. Okay. Then he says, um, here's how you can pray as I speak the word, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, that's an interesting prayer request. Pray for your pastor and pray for one another that you have an opportunity to share the gospel, and then when you're doing it, that it would be clear that God would give you uh, the right words to say to make it clear as you're speaking. Now, here's the key. This is what we're going to focus on today. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So let me zero in on verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Be smart. Be strategic in how you live amongst, and he uses the word outsiders. You know, a lot of people don't like to judge, you know, whether somebody's a believer or not. But this is saying, Christian, as you walk amongst the world, realize that either people are believers or they're not. 
And as you are living amongst outsiders, unbelievers, be wise, use wisdom, making the best use of the time. Right? The uh, NIV says, make the most of every opportunity. The NASB says, making the most of the opportunity. The Holman says, making the most of the time. New King James, redeeming the time. What, what this is saying is, you're only given X amount of years on this earth. Don't waste them. Don't waste the few precious years you are given. Now, how do you not waste your life? Well, this passage would say, a non-wasted life is one that doesn't hide away from the world, but one that is in the world, but you use your time purposefully and strategically and wisely to touch those who are not yet believers. Live your life in such a way that people are attracted to Christ. Do you live that way? You know, uh, there's a sermon that I've probably listened to more than any other sermon, and it was delivered by a pastor, two pastors at a pastor's conference. And um, this pastor said, you know, last night I was with a group of unbelievers. And we were talking about where each of them was at with the Lord. And we were talking about heaven and hell and the cross and Jesus. And then he says to these pastors, he says, you know, I like you, I like pastors, but given the choice between being here with you tonight and being with my unbelieving friends, I would rather be with them. And then he says, when you build relationships with unbelievers, and there comes that point where you have a conversation with them about salvation, and all eternity is hanging in the balance, that's living. So, Christian, I want to ask you, are you living? Have you had those conversations with unbelievers where eternity is hanging in the balance and God is using you to bring people to salvation? Unfortunately, some Christians go their entire lives without knowing that life, that joy, that power. You know, um, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said this, the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but of power. You know what he was talking about? There were those in the Corinthian church who were squabbling and complaining and stabbing Paul in the back and talking about one another, and he says, you know what, there's talkers, talk, 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 but there's no power in their life. Power is when the Holy Spirit 
is using you to advance the kingdom of God. So, honestly, evaluate yourself. Is the power of God working through you? You know, I, I wish so many Christians would just fall to their knees and say, Lord, I'm tired of talk, 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 talk Christianity. I want power Christianity where you are using me to advance the kingdom of God. Can you pray that prayer? Do you want that? All right. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give us three wisdom words. Okay. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And from the whole of Scripture, I'm going to give you three words. So, so when you walk away, so a month from now, when you look back and you go, what was that sermon about? Three words. Salt offense, and joy. All right? Three buzzwords. Salt, offense, and joy. And we'll, we'll talk about how these three words are, are words that will help us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So first of all, let's talk about salt. So Jesus said this. He said, you, y'all, Christians, right, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You know what he's saying? If you've lost what salt is supposed to do, then you're good for nothing. And you're you're good you're good for one thing to be thrown out and trampled on. Wow. Wow. Are you salty? Now, there's a debate amongst commentators. What, what, does, what does salt do? And the main two things that they kind of dispute over is this. Um, some people would say salt is a flavor agent. Therefore, it gives flavor to the world. Okay. Others would say, no, the main use for salt 2,000 years ago is it was a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators back then, so let's say you butchered your animal. You had a nice steak that night. Now, what do you do with the leftover meat? They would, uh, they would butcher it and rub salt into it, and that would keep it from rotting. So the debate goes back and forth. Is he talking about flavor or preservative? And here's what I'm going to say this morning. Doesn't matter right now. Here's the main thing that I want you to ask. Am I salt in the shaker or out of the shaker? Okay? Am I being used outside of the shaker? If you're just a Christian in the shaker all the time, hanging out with Christians, and your whole life is this Bible study, this ministry, uh, this church activity, uh, all your friends are Christians, You're not salt of the earth. The whole metaphor makes no sense if you're in the shaker all the time. There was a a book back in the 70s, Becky Pippert, called Out of the Shaker, Into the World, right? It's about getting out of our our little conclave of, of church activities and into the world, okay? Now, let me say this. I think there's a time to be 
uh, as, as a Christian to spend more time in the shaker, maybe when you just brand, or you're a brand new believer and, and you need to learn and you need to be discipled and you need to, to get your basics down. Or let's say you're involved in the world and the world is tempting you. There's a time to turn your back and to say, no, I, this, there's, there's a training time. There's a, a, uh, uh, a recovery time, a hospital time. All right? But the overall picture here is get out of the salt shaker into the world. Now you say, how do I know when I should spend more time in the salt shaker and more time in the world? I think it boils down to this. You have to ask the question, who's influencing whom more? Who's influencing whom more? So if, if uh, you're getting beat up and tempted, then yeah, they're influencing you more than you're being an influence, so get back in the hospital and get some help. On the other hand, um, if you can be an influence in your place of work and school and uh, neighborhood and so forth, get out there and do that. Okay. Now, let me make an observation. I know a lot of Christians who live in the salt shaker because they're afraid of the world. They're, they're fearful and afraid of the world, so they live in a protective cocoon inside the salt shaker. And you know what? There's some verses that tell us the world's a scary place. Jesus said the world cannot hate you. He's talking to unbelievers. The world can't hate you but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus says, I'll tell you this, the world hates me because I testify that it's sinful, that it's, that it's evil. And he ended up being crucified. Then Jesus says to believers, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So here's the deal. Become a Christian and the world will hate you. Isn't that great? Right? So um, many Christians read verses like this and they go, we're at, at war with the world. They're the enemy. It hates us. We're to hate it back. We're to live in fear, protect ourselves from from its influence and protect ourselves from, from being hated. And, and uh, like a castle, let's, let's pull up the drawbridge and let's get our, our, uh, our armor on and let's go to war against the world. Well, if you were to do a word study on the word world, yes, the, there, there are two places where that word appears. But let me give you some more. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. Yep, you're going to have problems. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So now you get the impression that your commanding officer is in authority over the world. So you don't have to live in fear of the world. And then how about this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus loved the world so much 
that he died for the world. Now, loving the world here is not the same thing as loving the sin, but it's loving the people. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Well, how can we do that if they hate us? Well, he's in control of the world. And he's commanding you to be in the world and to love the people of the world. And look at this one. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He knows it's dangerous. And you're just a little sheep. So now you have to decide. Do you live out of your own fear? Or do you obey what he's telling you? Trusting that the shepherd walks with you. Okay? Now, let me give you some interesting um, statistics. There's a fellow named Tom Rayner, and he uh, does surveys, and he interviewed over a thousand non Christians. And here is his question What do you think of Christians? Now, um, after compiling all the answers, here was his major conclusion. He has uh, seven common comments non-Christians make about Christians. Number one, in one study we conducted, we found that only 5% of non-Christians are antagonistic toward Christians. So yeah, there's a hardcore 5% um, that can't stand Christians, but there's 95% of non-Christians who are not antagonistic. And I think sometimes Christians can be so fearful because of stories you read in Christian media or conservative media. (gasps) They're all out to get us. 95% of them aren't. What are you so afraid of? Now, maybe if you were living in North Korea or China. But most people, they're not out to get you. What are you so afraid of? In fact... As, um, as he collected the responses, so the question is, non-Christian, what do you think about Christians? He grouped them into seven major categories. Now, I'm going to save number one for the last point. But here are four responses, and, and here's how he, he did this. He, he gave a sentence kind of as the heading of, of what a whole bunch of them said, and then an actual quote. Okay, here's what, what a lot of them said. Number, the second biggest answer. I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. I'm really interested in what they believe and how they carry out their beliefs. I wish I could find a Christian that would be willing to spend some time with me. Can't find them. They're all in the salt shaker, though. All right. A third response was, I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. The Bible really fascinates me, but I don't want to go to a stuffy, legalistic church to learn about it. It would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or at a place like Starbucks. Yeah. Here's another one. I wish I could learn to be a better husband, 
wife, dad, mom, etc. from a Christian. My wife threatened to divorce me, and I think she means it this time. My neighbor's a Christian, and he seems to have it together. I'm swallowing my pride and asking him to help me. Help is what many of them are saying. Okay? Then there's this one. I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. I really would like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going by myself. What's weird is that I'm 32 years old and I've never had a Christian invite me to church my entire life. They're saying, please invite me. Okay? So, um, point number one. You're the salt of the earth. Get out of the salt shaker. Don't be so afraid of the world. What can you do even this week, to get you in the regular flow of being in contact with unbelievers? Well, I go to Walmart. I mean, some of my best friends are at Walmart, really. Sam's Club, they know me by first name. Right? Sir, would you like one or two hot dog combos? Right? Um, So what can you do to regularly be in contact so you can build relationships with non-believers? Not just get in the car, drive to the store, get back in the car, and get back in your house, but actually love people. You know, for for many years... um, not like I had the time to do this, but I coached football for five years. Why? To build relationships with 16 dads and 100 kids. And even now, you know, I'll see people downtown and, hey, coach. You know, you know what we did this weekend? We spent two days in beautiful downtown Peoria. Yeah. (laughs) Chess tournament. Yeah. (laughs) Josh won six out of seven games. Got a medal, right? We're the chess mom and dad, right? And uh, you say, well, why'd you go? Who doesn't love chess, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know why we went to support Josh? But to just be there for those kids. You go, well, did you preach the gospel? Nope. Didn't preach the gospel once. Didn't, I don't think I, did you mention a Bible verse to anybody the whole time? Oh, you did. <laughs> Who'd you mention a Bible verse to? The girls. Oh, the girls? A little bit about Jesus, okay? So, yeah, I didn't. I didn't talk. You go, well, what did you do? Ton of card tricks. <laughs> Told chess jokes. What do you call a chess team in the hotel lobby bragging about their chess victories? Chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. Most of them didn't get it. Like, 
Queen's Pawn to the, you know, okay. Um, but I'll tell you this. So uh, this is a, it really was a grueling thing. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of thinking going on and a lot of agony. And finally, Josh, he got a medal, and the whole team is waiting for Josh to go up. And I heard, I heard this. One kid turns to Josh right before he goes up, and he goes, Hey, Josh, can I come to your Bible study on Thursdays? Josh does a Bible study at school. At a secular school. He's got a room. It's an officially sponsored event. He teaches Romans. Romans 9. Yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> Romans 9, wow. And you, that, that made it all worth it. Okay? One kid is going to come to Bible study this Thursday now. Okay? You go, oh, that was a lot of time for a weekend, and you had to stay at the Holiday Inn and eat their food, and it was, it was pretty good food, actually, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we need to be in the world, building relationships with people, laughing with people, caring about people. Right? So, are you salt? Or is it all about being protected in the shaker? Okay. Now, let me give you a second word. The word is offense. And some of you are going, oh, I'm good at that. No, no. <laughs> the idea is don't be this. Okay? Now, I can just hear some Christians saying, but part of being a Christian is taking a stand. Can't be afraid to take a stand. It's true. Got to take a stand. But let's talk about that whole taking a stand thing here for a second. Okay? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that his, his major agenda is to win people. To win people to Christ. Okay? Winning people's hearts is a complex, delicate art. Whereas taking a stand is something that a 300-pound lineman can do with little skill, little tact, little love. And it wins few. Okay? So let me show you how delicate this is. In 1 Corinthians, a big issue was this question. Can a Christian eat meat? Okay? It's like the, the, the question, can a Christian dance? Answer, some of them can, some of them can't. <laughs> I can't. I can do the Baptist corkscrew, which is... Okay. Um, but... Can a Christian eat meat? Now, why was that a question? Because, first of all, there, in Corinth, there were all these pagan temples. And most of the meat had been sacrificed to a pagan god. All right? Um, so now, the question is, 
and, and not only was there the pagan God issue, there was the Jew-Gentile issue, and Jews could not eat certain meat. There's the kosher question. So what you ate and with whom you ate became a question. So, so some Christians were saying, God made animals. If he didn't want us to eat meat, why did he make the animals out of meat? Right? So, so go ahead and eat it. And others were saying, yeah, but if it was sacrificed to a pagan god, I, I don't know if I should eat it. Uh, I don't know what to do. And then, then there, were the, there was the Jew-Gentile question. Okay? So Paul spends three chapters explaining the complexities of meat eating and why he can't just, uh, or why Christians can't just take a stand. It's not as easy as taking a stand. Some people are just, I need a black and white answer to everything. He doesn't give a black and white answer. He says, first of all, love has to be the foundation of your actions. And winning them to Christ is the highest goal. So you need to have the ability to read people, each individual person, and each situation. So the answer to can a Christian eat meat that had been sacrificed in a temple or or non-kosher meat is... It really depends. Okay? In fact, look at how complicated this is. Paul says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So, you know what? If I'm with Jews, I am not eating the ham sandwich. What about non-Jews? To those outside the law, outside the Mosaic law, non-Jews, I became as one outside the law. Pass the bacon, please. right? What about if you're with an unbeliever? Look at this. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he puts the blood sausage in front of you. They, Jews couldn't eat blood. Blood sausage and pig's head. Eat up. But if someone says to you, you're in mid-bite, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. Wait a minute. This is wishy-washy. This isn't black and white. In the middle of eating, you can change. Yeah. Love, winning, conscience. Oh, lots of shifting factors going on all at the same time. So, If you're with a Gentile, don't offend them by refusing their dinner. If you're with a Jew, don't offend them by eating the pork chop. If you're with a person with a weak conscience and they're not sure, don't offend them by forcing them to eat or drink something that they would be uncomfortable with. If you're with a stronger Christian, eat up. If you're with a believer, you better read them to find out where they're at. If you're with an unbeliever, you better read them to find out where they're at. Okay? Because the ultimate goal is not taking a stand. The ultimate goal is not claiming your rights. 
The ultimate goal is winning their soul so they don't go to hell. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Give no offense. Just as I try to please everyone. Paul, you're a man pleaser. Yes, I am. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now, you say, so are you teaching us to be politically correct? No. Huge difference between what Paul is advocating here and being politically correct. Being politically correct is just, I don't want to offend anybody ever about anything so I can fit in. Paul's motive is not fear of man. Paul's motive is saving souls. Now, it may look the same, but the motive is completely different. The politically correct person, his greatest fear is people's opinions. Paul's greatest fear is people's eternities. Right? Now, you say, um, well, meat, meat is complicated. But those gay people, that's black and white. Did he just say that? Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the whole gay thing. Okay? Um, Is homosexuality wrong? Yes. Yes. Homosexual sin, homosexual activity is sinful, okay? But wait a minute. Before you put the bumper sticker on your car, do you know that most people who are involved in that lifestyle or most people who aren't involved in that lifestyle but support that lifestyle, do you know what their perception is? of Christians is. Many of them believe that Christians believe that homosexuality is the unforgivable sin. So you know what I think would be a wise agenda? To talk about sexual sin as broader than just homosexuality but to broaden the category to what Scripture actually includes. Even if you lust, have lust in your heart, you are guilty of sexual sin. So now, that little narrow circle has been broadened. Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery uh, of the heart, Uh, And you are deserving of the fires of hell. Don't you think explaining that might help when trying to talk to somebody about this issue? The bumper sticker doesn't explain all that. All right? But having a loving relationship and being able to talk about the bigger picture might actually contribute to winning somebody. Okay? 
uh, saw a bumper sticker in the area on a Christian's car, and it said, I believe in the Big Bang. God spoke, and bang, the world was created. Okay? Now, um, you know, I preach through Genesis. I believe God spoke, and I, I don't know, though, that when I pull my car into work, that that's the main issue that I want to lead with. Okay? Well, Ken Ham says you got to take a stand on Genesis 1 or the whole Bible's up for question. I understand that. But if we don't have to start with that, could we start with Jesus? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Pastor, are you compromising on, on six-day creationism? No, no. I'm just trying to walk wise. And not, I, I, I mean, if they want to bring it up, let's talk about it. But I don't want to put that on my bumper sticker and make that the presenting issue. Okay. What about politics? Well, what's most important to you? The salvation of souls? Or taking your stand on your political party? Are you saying we should never talk about I As long as you can talk about it in a way that doesn't create a stumbling block where now people have shut you down and, and you can no longer talk about Jesus. Okay? Walk wise. Highest goal. Love and the salvation of souls. I have political opinions. I just want to be really wise. In when I open my mouth. Okay? You know, probably the number one issue that the unbeliever has today is this. How can you Christians, especially in light of, of the other world religions, Islam and Buddhism and uh, you know, Hinduism, how, how can you be so arrogant as to think Christianity is the only way? They hear Christianity is the only way. They think you're arrogant, okay? So wouldn't it be great to be able to sit down with somebody and say, well, first of all, that whole thing about Christ being the only way, do you know that it was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So it's not Christians who are arrogant. It's Jesus who set himself apart as the only way, but now you have an opportunity to explain why Christianity is the only way. And it has to do with the perfection of God. God is perfectly just and perfectly loving. As being perfectly just on Judgment Day, he must, he must judge all sin. Or he would be Less than perfect. In, uh, when it comes to love, he's perfectly loving. So what he does is he pays the price for sinners. He dies on the cross to pay the price for sinners. All other world religions 
say you have to in some way earn your way with your own good works to heaven. They all lower the perfection of God by allowing people who are less than perfect into heaven. Christianity upholds the perfection of God. He requires a perfect standard, and he gives that to you. Christ came to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, and when you believe in him, you get what he did for you. That's why he's the only way. Okay? So, but that, you know what that takes? That takes a relationship to explain. So, you know, there's a place for taking a stand, but there's also a place where taking a stand just cuts the relationship out. I guess the, the, the bigger question is, how's it working for you? How is taking the stand working for you in leading people to Christ? How about taking a stand in love while winning people, walking wisely in the world? Okay? Now, last thing we should talk about. Joy. Now, I mentioned the Thomas Rayner survey. He had seven things that he learned in interviewing Christians, or non-Christians, about Christians. The number one thing he learned was this. Response of non-Christians. Christians are against more things than they're for. Here's a quote. It just seems to me that Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They're so negative that they seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them and stay upset all the time. Ooh, ooh, that hurt. Christians seem mad all the time and angry and upset. I don't want to be like that. Doesn't seem like they're Jesus, you know. He, he seemed different than that, but boy, I, I, don't, I don't want to be like that. The fruit of the Spirit. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and he gives you love, joy, and peace. Not wrath, anger, and turmoil. If if your life is not characterized by love, joy, and peace, you're not going to reach people. Because you're not portraying who Christ is to the world. Now, I'm not talking about put on a fakey, plastic, Christian-y smile. Okay? Emotions are real. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus sweat blood in the garden. So there's real emotion. Okay? But overall, is the whole of your Christian life characterized by joy. You say, well, if you only knew the troubles I had, whoa. You know what's interesting? Some of the most joyful Christians I've ever known have some of the deepest troubles of people I've ever known. But they have a deep joy. Right? So, Here's a question. If you are not characterized by joy, 
what's going on there? What's, what's the cancer that's causing your lack of joy? And are you willing to go after it and root it out? If not, why not? Let me suggest three things that are joy stealers. One, legalism. Legalistic thinking and surrounding yourself with legalistic people will kill your joy. Remember we studied Galatians a couple years ago, and uh, Paul basically writes this treatise to the Galatians, uh, and, and he says, uh, when I came to you, I preached the gospel, which is you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But then some people snuck in to the Galatian church, and they, they dumped a whole load of legalism. And all of a sudden, they lost their joy. In fact, Paul says this, what has become of your blessed, blessedness? Some translations say, what has become of your joy? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So um, some people think Paul had an eye problem and, and um, when he first preached the gospel to them, they would have sacrificed their own eyes for him. But now they're stabbing him in the back and they're judging one another and there's dissension and there's anything but joy. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And he spends the whole letter proving that, that salvation is by faith alone, not by law, not by legalism. And then he tells this, uh, that gives this analogy about Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. And his conclusion is this, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Remember when Abraham kicked out Hagar uh, and Ishmael? And you go, that's not good parenting. Well, it was all done to make a point. Get rid of legalism. Quit surrounding yourself with legalists. They're going to zap you of your joy. I guarantee you, if you drill down and think about your joylessness at the base of it, there's some kind of legalistic thinking going on as your theological foundation. Get rid of it. Right? Let me give you a second reason why we lose our joy. We're too caught up in the things of this world. We, we've based our joy on things that can never bring joy. You know, in the Old Testament, there's this king, really bad king, Ahab. And he looks out his, his castle window one day. He goes, oh, I really want that, that vineyard next to the castle. I'm going to plant a vegetable garden there. So he goes to the owner of, uh, of the vineyard. His name is Naboth. And he says, I want to buy your vineyard. And, and Naboth says, oh, oh, I can't sell it to you because it, I, it's an inheritance. It's in the family, right? And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Didn't get my vineyard. So his lovely wife Jezebel comes in. And she goes, hey, Mopey, what's the deal with the frown? 
He goes, I didn't get my vineyard. And she's, she's like, is this how the king of Israel acts? She goes, I'll take care of this. And she accuses Naboth of blaspheming, and he gets stoned, and she steals the vineyard. She should have said, is this the way the king of Israel acts? Set your eyes on God. Don't place your happiness in a vineyard. If you're not filled with joy, legalism, I'm sure, has crept into your your thinking, and you're probably setting your hopes on the things of this world, not the things of God. And then last thing that will rob you of your joy, losing sight of the gospel. Losing sight of the gospel. Think about this. Christian, you were going to hell for eternity. You were going to burn in hell for eternity, and the wrath of God, the waves of his wrath, were going to come upon you again and again and again and again, and you would say, how long have I been here? Five minutes. How long do I have to go? Eternity. That was, I mean, think about that. Really think about that. But God in his love sent his son to absorb the wrath of God for your sin on the cross. And the great news is all who trust in him, you're not going to hell anymore. You're going to heaven. And you will experience wave upon wave upon wave of God's love for eternity. When you lose sight of that, all is lost. What a great God we have. Place your trust in Christ. Remind yourself of the gospel. Worship team, come on up. Lord, I pray that you would make us wise in the way we act, in the way we walk, in the way we think, in the choices we make in this world. Lord, may we be salty salt. May we get out of the salt shaker and into the world. And Lord, help us to to be aware of of not causing unnecessary offense with our choices and our words. And then, Lord, I pray you would produce in us a great joy, an obvious joy that makes a difference. And people say, what is different about you? And may this all resound to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.